Ephesians chapter 1 since the beginning of June, and last or two weeks ago we wrapped up our study on the long benediction or blessing that is in verses 3 to 14, and today we are going to transition from Paul's benediction to Paul's prayer for the saints. I'll be reading verses 15 through 23, so here now God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray together. Oh, our great and high and exalted God, you are the one true and living God, and this is your word. We do pray that you would truly speak to us this morning through it, that you would encourage us, that you would teach us, instruct us, you would rebuke us and correct us according to your righteousness. Help us to glorify you even as we listen and as we take these things to heart. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The late Presbyterian pastor James Montgomery Boyce, who was longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, was once asked a question by a young adult in their post-college group. And the question was this, Dr. Boyce, What is the greatest need for the evangelical church today? And in reflecting upon his answer, Dr. Boyce said, well, I could have said uh, greater faithfulness to the scriptures, to God's word, or a deeper love for one another in the church. But his answer was this, I think the greatest need of the evangelical church today is for professing Christians to really know God. Professing Christians to really know God. And as we get to our passage this morning, I think the Apostle Paul would have a similar answer as Dr. Boyce. Um, because in the ch- verses 3 to 14, Paul has been talking about these great and magnificent blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, how we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And yet he transitions from these blessings that he's declared to a prayer, um, a prayer for the saints. And you could summarize this prayer uh, by saying it's a prayer that they would know that these blessings are theirs, that they would know this God. And so as we come to this passage, I think we could summarize it very basically by saying That God delights to be known, and he is known by his people through, as a response to, God's 
the people praying for that knowledge. So when we look at this passage, we can break it into three, three uh, basic parts. There's a, there's a cause for prayer, uh, and then we see the content of the prayer, and then we see a confidence of the, of the prayer. So a cause, a content, and a confidence. So he begins with the cause for the prayer. He says, for this reason, and he says, uh, he, gives, uh, he gives, for this reason, he's, he's giving a reason for this prayer. He's going to pray. And uh, we, we can see three different reasons why he's praying. The first is uh, he's pointing back to everything that he's just said in verses 3 to 14. God has lavished his grace upon his people. He has, uh, it's, it's extended into eternity past as he's chosen his people before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. He's predestined them for adoption as sons. And then he, he has redeemed them in the blood of Christ. And then he's given them this hope that they might live and this deposit of the Holy Spirit. And so all these things, he says, he's got in his mind. And he says, for this reason, he's thinking about that, and then it causes him to pray. But those 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 promises, those blessings, those are all just kind of blessings that are out there, not necessarily applied to any anyone in particular, uh, until something happens. He sees two things. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. He sees a, a working of God's spirit in the lives of his people in two key ways. He says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's they've they've heard of this. Paul's heard that they they've received these promises of God, and it's not just a uh, acceptance of the fact that God is who He says He is and He's done what He said, but it's a faith that that, that they've grabbed hold on. That they've it's transformed, begun to tra- the work of transforming their lives, and they've stand. They're standing on that. They're resting on those things in Jesus Christ. And it's begun to bear fruit in the way that they treat each other. It says, um, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. And this is a necessary implication of the gospel in our lives. You may remember that the Lord Jesus connected the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, with a second one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And other biblical writers go further than that, and, then say, and they say things like, we ought to have love for our brothers and sisters. It's a mark of the, the Spirit's work in our lives. It's a mark of true faith and faithfulness in the, the, the heart of the believer. And Paul sees this. He's heard of this in the Ephesian church, and so he responds with a prayer. So let me just pause for a second to ask you this. Do you have that love for all the saints? Do you have a particular and unique love for God's people that is distinct uh, and, 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 and particular for the people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ? It needs to go beyond a mere tolerance or uh, acceptance that you're stuck with these people for all eternity. It's a brotherly affection. It's a uh, realizing that 
uh, you share um, a common family, a common father, a common spirit. Uh, there's a love and a, a desire, a care and a concern that uh, whether you have uh, met this brother and sister in Christ or you just have heard of them somewhere else, that you have an affection for God's people. Uh, love for the saints is something that is a mark of the Spirit in your life. And Paul sees that in the life of these Ephesians. Um, and his response is to pray. And so we turn from the cause of the prayer to the prayer itself. And we see kind of two different things that Paul does in this prayer. He gives thanks and then he intercedes. So he begins with thanks. He says, for this reason, because I heard these things, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So why would he give thanks? He's heard this faith. He's heard of this love. Why doesn't he applaud them and say, well, you know, finally you guys got it. Finally you understood what I was preaching about. Well, he doesn't do that. He gives thanks to God for this because he realizes that even he, the Apostle Paul, as much as he might labor to teach and explain and proclaim the truth of God, he can't will anybody to faith. He doesn't have that power. None of us have that a power, power or ability to will faith. We can share these precious promises, but the work of receiving by faith and the fruit of that faithfulness is a work of God's Spirit. And so he gives thanks, and we should give thanks when we see those things. We could assume that this prayer of thankfulness was preceded by plenty of prayers for intercession. Because if you remember, the Apostle Paul served as a pastor of Ephesus for two to three years. And no doubt, while he labored there, he prayed for them, that they would receive this gift of faith, that they would understand these things that he was teaching. And even after he left Ephesus, you know, it's been about seven years from the time he left until he wrote this. Uh, no doubt after he left, he's still praying for those people that they might grab hold of who they are in Christ and give God the glory through their actions. And now he hears it. He says, I, I have heard of your faith and your love for all the saints. And so how could he not how could how he possibly cease giving thanks? Thank you, Father, that you finally brought forth this harvest of righteousness in these people, that my labor was not in vain. And so that ought to be an encouragement to us, that don't ever stop praying for those people that you're praying for. Don't ever stop praying for your kids, that their hearts would receive the implanted word. Never stop praying for your spouse or your brothers and sisters in Christ, or those unbelieving friends or neighbors or co-workers, the Lord hears your prayers, and he brings about his gracious will in response to those prayers. And Lord willing, you will hear of how God has brought about faith, so you can pray without ceasing giving thanks for his work in these people's lives. So he gives thanks, but then he turns to intercession, and he says, uh, he says, um, I, I do not cease to give thanks, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So it's, this is a surprising turn, because the Apostle Paul 
is praying with one particular intercession that these Ephesians would have a knowledge of God. And this is surprising because who is he praying about? He's praying about people who he has heard of their faith and their love toward all the saints. In our 21st century American Christianity, these would be the people that we'd say, okay, they've got faith in the Lord Jesus, and they love one another. These people are solid. These people are solid. Um, we can give thanks for them because the Lord's obviously at work in them, but we don't need to pray that they know God. Obviously, they know God. They have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're loving one another. You know, that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's praying for these believers that they would know God, that they would know God. And perhaps what hap- what's happened is that we have grown far too content with a lack of knowledge in who God is. Uh, and notice that he doesn't say, it, he's not praying that they would have a knowledge of who God is. It's a, they would have a knowledge of him. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But um, I think we've grown, grown content in our ignorance to a certain extent. We say, well, you know, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have received him as my Savior. I am going to be in eternity with him, so I'm good. Like, I don't really need to grow in my knowledge of who God is because I've, I'm, already, I'm, I'm already good. Or we do something that's kind of a substitute for what I think Paul is getting at, where we learn things about God. We, we study the Bible in a particular way where we're trying to gain facts. Uh, we, we, the, the details surrounding the circumstances, the characters, or we, we become theologians that we like to turn reduce God into a series of attributes or uh, components so that we can hold on to God with, with we, we feel like we know him by the details of his life. Um, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's not, the point is not learning about God. Those things are all very essential elements. They're, they're aids to obtaining this knowledge. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's not talking about facts about God. He's talking about knowledge of God himself that he's praying for. These are people who understand something about God, but he wants them to know God. He wants them to know. And he, he describes it in a couple different ways. He says, um, he prays that uh, that God would give a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So when we talk about wisdom, we tend to think about uh, wise living, uh, taking knowledge and knowing how to apply it in a particular context in our life, like what we might receive or what we see as we read through Proverbs. Um, but this is a little bit different. This is a, a wisdom unto salvation. This is a wisdom in the knowledge of God. He, he's making us wise in, in, in knowing God. Uh, and it comes from this spirit of wisdom, even the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about a wisdom uh, that, uh, that he might give a spirit of revelation. It's specifically the spirit of revelation. And when we talk about revelation, this is a unveiling or a revealing of things that are otherwise hidden. So we're not talking about new revelation, as though God is going to teach us something new about himself. It is really revealing the things that we have in God's word and um, bringing them out in the context 
of our lives, helping us to understand those things which he has already revealed. And the same spirit that inspired the prophets and the apostles to give us God's word is that same spirit that Paul is praying for that we would have dwelling in us to help us to understand these things, to apply, to, to realize how, how we fit into that story of, God, of God's story, um, how, how we ought to apply these things to our lives. Um, and he talks about, uh, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, which is an interesting phrase. As Americans, we would tend to say, We've got our minds, which are responsible for our thoughts and our understanding, and then we have our hearts, which are there for our emotions or our feelings. Uh, in the biblical view, the heart was the seat of all reason and uh, thoughts and emotions and things like that. And so this phrase of the eyes of the heart is really uh, an ability to understand and perceive and to uh, receive uh, these things that are true. Um, it would have been well understood to these Ephesian people that they're having their, they need to have their eyes of their hearts enlightened. And elsewhere in Scripture, Romans chapter one is one such place. We see it later in Ephesians. Paul tells us that in the fall into sin, one thing that happened was that God gave us over to a foolish mind, foolish hearts, that they became darkened, that we became unable to see those things which are obvious and plain and glorious right before our very eyes, that claiming to be wise, we became fools, that we stopped being able to see and understand things for the way that they really are. And that's what Paul is asking that God would do is roll that back and say, give light to those eyes, help them to see what's right there, right before they're, they're in front of their faces that they can't see. Uh, give them wisdom, give them revelation, help them grow in this knowledge of Christ. And in fact, this, this spiritual darkness is why sharing our faith doesn't have the results that we would tend to like. Uh, we would want to be able to convince people of the truth of the gospel, to just be able to explain it. Uh, a particular way, and people would say, well, that makes logical sense, and I'm going to receive it and live my life on it, but that's not the way that it works. And the reason it doesn't work that way every time is because reception of the gospel is something that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must open the eyes of our hearts to receive these things, believe them, and live by them. And so, uh, Paul prays for these very things. But the, the, the shocking thing is that he's praying these things for believers. He's praying for people like you and for me. We, those of us who have received these things as true, we have put their faith in Christ, living it out by love. And so even when we have received Christ, there is still a foolishness that resides there's still a darkness. There's still a hiddenness of who God is that needs to be shown to us, that we need to grow in. And he gives three particular ways in which people need to grow in this. He says, starting in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you is where he starts. 
If you remember from a couple weeks ago, we talked about this great and glorious hope that is a, that is a, he's, it's a, he's reaching it back to eternity past where it says it's a hope to which he has called you. So in eternity past, he's called you to that hope, but it's a hope that is in the future where he is, our, our salvation was secure in eternity past. It was secure in eternity present when we came to faith, when Christ died on the cross, but there's a hope that is still yet to come where we still wait for that redemption to be complete. We wait for that salvation to be perfectly complete. And Paul's saying that we have this hope to which we've been called that we're we're struggling to see. We can't see it. We, we need God to give us eyes to see that hope to which he has called us. So the hope is one. And the next is uh, the what are what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints? Now, at first glance, that might seem pretty much like the same thing he said with the hope, but it's a little bit different because he's focusing on the riches of this glorious inheritance that he has given. God has given his children a a glorious inheritance that is rich beyond all measure. We can't we can't imagine its glory. And of this wealth of riches, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 16, he says that, that all that the Father has is mine. And he said, when the Spirit comes, he will declare it to you. He will convey this to you. So it's the totality of all that God has. The totality of every spiritual blessing, everything, the storehouses of all of God's goodness and glory and majesty poured out for his people. It's rich beyond our wildest dreams. And we live as though we don't have this. We don't know of this glorious riches. And the third is power. Uh, there's hope, riches, and power. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe that God has this power that is at work within his people that has been poured out by his spirit. And we need to know, we need to see this power that is at work that gives us great hope. Um, it is a power that is infinite and unstoppable. It is immeasurably great, he says. And it is at work in us even now. These are things that we need to know better that we need to understand. I don't know about you. I don't live as though I know these things internally, that I have internalized these three things, uh, let alone the fullness of who God is. Um, there's, a, there's a huge disconnect between what God has given to us in Jesus Christ, what Paul declares in this very passage, and how we live. Paul says we have, we have been called to a glorious hope, and yet, how often do the circumstances of our lives, the conflict, the struggles, they choke out, they suffocate the joy and the hope and the confidence that we have? We have something that is a glorious hope that awaits us, that is secure, kept in heaven for us. We've been given a rich and glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. It is secure. We live like we're impoverished, like we're 
squabbling for scraps. Or worse yet, we fight for this life as though this is far greater than anything that we will ever obtain. Or, you know, he says that we've got this great and glorious power that is at work in us, uh, and yet we act as though we are powerless to fight against the sin that is in our hearts, or that we can even do anything good in the midst of this world. But God has given us these great and precious promises in his Son, Jesus Christ, and has conveyed those to us, applied those to us in the Holy Spirit. And so we ought to know these things. We ought to pray that God would make these things clear to us because they are ours. So he moves from the content to, I think, the confidence for his prayer. And that is a focus on this power. And what he essentially says is that this power is is so great and has been manifested. Uh, this power at work in us has been manifested in his son, Jesus Christ. And the things that he says, I wasn't planning on doing this before, but the things that he says in this passage are far richer and deeper than uh, we can cover right now. So we're going to actually delve into this in more detail next week as we wrap up chapter 1 next week. But we can summarize what he says right uh, today. And his power was manifest in the Lord Jesus in three things, in his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. So he says, um, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? That's the first thing. So death comes, death came as a result of the fall. And all of us, we know, are subject to death. And the Lord Jesus Christ bore death for us. He, he participated in death for us. And yet, by God's great power, he raised him from the dead, which tells us something, that there is resurrection from the dead. And Paul will get into this in chapter 2, that as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we can be raised from dead, the dead. And so we see that power at work. That's the first thing, is raising him from the dead. But then it moves on to ascension. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has raised Christ uh, as this God-man into the heavenly realms and seated him at his right hand and given him the name that is above every other name. He, is, he has put him at his right hand and he has exalted him. But then... His final exaltation, he has submitted all things under his feet. He put, verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So even now, as Christ is reigning in heaven, all things have been put under his feet and have, having been given as head to the church, there is an element that all things are under the feet of the church. That he's put all things under all rulers and authorities under the subjection of that church. And we'll talk about that next week, but that is the power that he has demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the same power that is at work in you and me. And so that power gives him confidence, confidence to pray for these things, that if God has this power at work in us, he wants us to know it. And part of that, part of that receiving that is knowing who God is. 
So just a couple of points of application as we uh, begin to close, just two. The first that I want to talk about is that it ought to be clear that we lack a knowledge of God, and yet God is willing, he wills that we would, that he, we would know him, that uh, he's willing to be known by us. Jesus said, this is eternal life, Father, that they know you, the one true and living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So there's an element that eternal life is knowing God. Um, We come from a disadvantaged position in our fallen estate because, first off, we think we know enough, or we try to get by with the minimal amount. We don't see this as something that we uh, want or that we need to grow in. Um, And when we uh, work through these things, we think we have the right answers when often we need to constantly grow and renew our thinking about who this God is. But I'm convinced that we we will never, never, never know the fullness of what we can know or what we want to know. I'm convinced that all of eternity is going to be spent by knowing God better. We have that opportunity, that that privilege to begin in that now. That's what Paul's praying for. God is an infinite and eternal God, and we are finite, but we have been given eternal life. And it would take all of eternity for us to understand the fullness of God's character, his majesty, his glory, his might, and I'm, I'm convinced that that is what we will be spending all of eternity doing, is knowing our God better, even as he knows us. Um, and this knowledge is much more than facts, much more than knowing things about him. It is knowing and being known. It's a relational knowing. Um, it is learning to listen and not, I don't mean just here. I mean listen to what God says and accept what he says as true and begin to internalize what he says in a way that it, we rest on it, we, we stand on it, we live by it. Um, it's listening to what God says about himself and considering how, do we really believe that? Accepting that as really true, and then changing the way that we live. It's listening to what he says about you and what he's done for you and what he feels about you, what he thinks about you, what he's doing with you over the course of your life and eternity. God t- tells us that he has given us these this hope, these riches, this power. Do you really believe it? Are you really accepting it? and growing in it. Um, And it's much more than something that we can just pick up a book or a singular study or even a a sermon series and know everything we need to know about God. It is something that is worked out experientially. It is, um, it's like learning to hit a softball. I mean, I, I can pick up a book about how to read how to hit a softball better, you know, how to get my timing down, how to get more power 
you know, things like that. I can watch some YouTube videos. But until I, I can't, I can't even go into the cage, and that'll help me. I can get batting practice, but that, even that's not the same. I have to go into the game, and I actually have to be in the context of a game to get better at hitting. I need more practice. I need experience. I need to put into to practice those things that I've I've learned. And so it is with our knowledge of God. You know, we can say that we know certain things, and we can say that we accept those things, but until we are put into a situation to apply those things, until we're in the conflicts of our marriage or our family life or a coronavirus or, you know, racial inequality or whatever, um, how do we know that our knowledge and our faith is real? Until it's proven out, as Peter says. Um, And so... God, what we're asking for in these prayers is that God would help us to know him experientially, that it would deepen, that we would form roots of our knowledge of him. And this is something that God, by his Holy Spirit, gives to his adopted children. He desires to be known and loved and adored and served. And so he works and he declares these things that we might hear him and accept them, but then he works in our hearts to believe them, believe these things so that we can draw near. So uh, we need more knowledge. That's the first. And the second is that we have to see the importance and the power and the privilege of prayer for one another. And that God gives this knowledge that we're asking for as a response to prayer. Um, prayer is an essential lifeblood of the church. Prayer is a means by which God works out his will. God has said, these are the things that I am going to do. But he doesn't say how he's going to do them. And he calls us to pray for things agreeable to his will. And in response to that, often, is how he brings those things to bear. Not always, but um, in a large form, that is what is happening. And so when we when we think about praying for knowledge, I think I think there's a few different ways that we could see that God works out that prayer. One is um, by clearing distractions. We have so many distractions in our lives, whether they're just wandering minds, um, they're the annoyances of life that take our attention, um, internal boredom, or just all-out time-consuming conflicts that we have. God God can clear the field of our hearts from all weeds and rocks so that the planted word can take root and we can grow in that knowledge. Or um, he can answer that prayer by giving us a desire. Uh, when we talk about reading our Bibles or praying, you know, a lot of us will lament that we're not in, our wor- in, the, in the Bible as much as we can or we're not praying the way we ought, but we often talk as though it's, like this liquid, nasty-tasting antibiotic that we've got to take because that's the only way that we're going to get better. Somebody's telling us we have to do it. But God can give us that desire that to realize that this is not just a liquid elixir, but this is a glorious feast uh, of God's grace. Um, he can give us understanding uh, God's word, there's much in it that's difficult to understand. It was given over thousands of years, different languages, contexts. Um, he's given us 
uh, stories and poetry and proverbs and letters and all these different ways that he communicates who he is to us. Um, and we need spiritual understanding or we need spiritual help in order to understand these things. And God answers that prayer in a large form through the teachers, the pastors that he's given to us as they explain things to us, help us to see things that we can't see on our own. And so when we pray for knowledge of God, there's an element that we're praying for those teachers and those pastors, that they might understand these things for themselves in a way that they can explain them so that we can receive them and understand them. But um, also, when we're asking for knowledge, we're asking that God would help us to prove these things out by faith in the course of our lives, experientially, in our daily lives. It, It takes an understanding of who God is and Him telling us these things, but it also takes the will and the courage to put those things into practice in the conflicts of our lives, in the moments, the small moments of our lives. And it takes the power and the boldness of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. It takes the Lord changing our hearts to be able to do those. And so prayer is the vehicle that God gives us to ask for these things. And he calls us to do it for each other. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. And to that point, I want you to know that you are being prayed for significantly. Just like we read in the, the law passage where Samuel said, far be it for me that I should sin against God by failing to pray for you. And just as in Acts chapter 6, the apostles said, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Know that I and the elders of Zion are praying diligently for you. We're praying for Zion as a whole, but also for each one of you individually. We're praying for the timely conflicts and joys of your lives, lives, but also prayers like this, that you would know God, that you would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would have victory over the sins that are in your hearts. And so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege that we have to pray for you, and it's a privilege that we all have to pray for each other. We, we have the right the, the calling and the gift of being able to serve as priests, praying for each other. So consider that. Consider that as you pray, uh, your prayers may be the means that the Lord uses to give eyes to an unbeliever or to a believer to understand some aspect of God's grace and mercy anew for the very first time. Um, it could be the, your prayers could be, your prayers for me could be what, allows me to have the joy and the strength to proclaim God's word to you or to, or the other teachers of, of Zion to be able to proclaim God's grace to you in a way that you never thought of it from another perspective. Please, please pray for us, pray for each other, pray for your siblings in, in the body of Christ, for your spouse and for your children. And, and know this, you know, our prayers are only heard because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We, we read it in the assurance of pardon, but the Lord Jesus Christ lives now and is seated at God's right hand to intercede on your behalf. So know for certain that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, is praying for you and for me for these very things, that we would know God the way we ought, that we would have this spirit of revelation and 
wisdom, that we would delight ourselves in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. This is God's will for you. This is something that Jesus has brought about and he is working by the power of his Holy Spirit for our great benefit and for his glory. And so let's pray to that end even now. Please pray with me. Father, thank you that you have given us this great privilege of praying. Thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is praying for us. And thank you that you hear our prayers. We do pray that you would give us knowledge of yourself, that you would allow us to prove out these things that you have given to us, that we would stand on them, that we would rest in them, and that you would be pleased to work faith and hope and love in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, our hymn of response is 380. Please stand with me. Our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, reigns supreme even now, and so we sing together hymn 380, Crown Him with Many Crowns. <laughs>